Are you hiding parts of yourself at work? If so, you are not alone. Many of us, particularly women of color, don't feel safe enough to share our true selves at work, which takes a toll on us physically and emotionally. This week, I talk with Trisha Montalvo Tim, author of the book, Embrace the Power of You, Owning Your Identity at Work. Trisha shares very vulnerably the story of how in her quest to assimilate and blend in at work, she found herself denying important parts of herself. Here, we talk about the ways in which so many of us feel pressured to downplay our our authentic selves, what we can do to embrace our true selves, and how we can create more inclusive workplaces so that we all feel less pressure to hide what makes us special. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Files. My name is Kim Menninger, and as an executive coach and former high-tech leader, my personal mission is to help professionals overcome imposter syndrome so that you can advance your career with confidence. Each week, I interview a new guest who brings a powerful perspective to this conversation, including personal stories, best practices, and new insights. The more we talk about this issue, the more we destigmatize imposter syndrome, recognize that we're not alone, and empower ourselves to access the tools and resources that can help us and those around us. Thank you so much for listening and for sharing with others you think would benefit from this conversation. Welcome, Trisha. I know I said this to you before I hit record, but I'm going to say it again to you. I'm so excited to meet you and to have this conversation. I would love to start by inviting you to introduce yourself. Thank you, Kim. I'm so excited to be here um, and have this amazing conversation. So um, a little bit about me professionally. Um, I have been working in Silicon Valley for over 25 years, uh, working with mostly high-tech companies from small startups to large global multinational companies. Uh, and um, I'm a corporate lawyer by training. Um, and my last operational role was as general counsel and executive sponsor of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, at Looker, which was a data analytics company uh, that we sold to Google in 2020 in uh, one of their largest transactions, 2.6 billion. It was their fourth largest transaction. Uh, from there, I decided to pivot in my career. And now I have a portfolio career. So I serve on a corporate board of directors of a company called Saltify, um, and I'm the chair of their comp committee, member of their audit committee there, serve on a, a few nonprofit boards as well. Uh, and then I wrote this book, um, Embrace the Power of You, Owning Your Identity at Work, uh, which we just uh, published in March and uh, speaking about that right now and to organizations and and companies. Uh, so that's a little bit about my professional background. It's, it's okay. I'd love to spend a minute or two on my personal background because I think that gives a little context to all of this. Um, I am a first-generation Latina. My father is from Ecuador. My mother is from El Salvador. Uh, They immigrated to this country uh, and met in LA. And I was born in Los Angeles, California. And we lived in Los Angeles um, until I was about six years old. And my parents, as first, uh, as immigrants, had thick Spanish accents. Um, and unfortunately, they were discriminated against. And like, you know, most immigrants, um, they really wanted the American dream for their family. And they wanted us to struggle less than they were struggling. So they moved us out of the city into an accompanying suburb um, where I all of a sudden found myself um, as the only 
Latina and a predominantly white community. And out of love, they really thought um, it would be better if people didn't know where I was from, if uh, I assimilated, if I just blended into the crowd, that I would have an easier path. Uh, and in some respects, they were right. Um, you know, unfortunately, we do have a lot of bias in the workplace. Uh, so I think it helped me in some ways, but it takes an emotional toll after a while, really, you know, not showing up authentically as who you are, downplaying your ethnicity. And I also found I wasn't alone as I was writing my book. Uh, 76% of Latinos downplay or hide their ethnicity at the workplace. So yeah, 76%. So it's a high number. So I'm not alone on this. And as I've been telling my stories, um, many have uh, come to me and, and, and shared that, they, that they're that they doing the same thing. So um, that's, yeah, that's a little bit about my background. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And this is really, I think, an important conversation when you talk about hiding a part of yourself or downplaying a part of yourself that has to take a toll on you, right? Like you feel like you're keeping this secret and then you're not being able to be true to yourself. And so what is the effect of that? You know, it's interesting. So for me, I started doing it at a young age that I didn't even intentionally consciously know I was doing that as an adult. It sort of became who I was. And so when, you know, when I was so I was, you know, growing up outside of LA, and I I'll, I tell the story in the book, and I think it explains a little bit of like why I was hiding. Uh, I did a little bit of acting. Uh, we lived near Hollywood, and uh, so I had an agent, and I was doing all the things, and I got a photo, you know, a, a photo shoot, and and had the whole thing. And I my original photo had my name, um, Patricia Montalvo. And when I was going out on auditions, they, I was getting all the Spanish speaking parts, uh, or I was being asked to audition for Spanish speaking parts, but not English speaking part, mainstream, mainstream parts. And so my agent said, you know, we are having a problem. You're not getting, you know, asked to come to these auditions for the mainstream parts, which are the more, you know, um, the, you know, the, the better ones. And they said, well, you need to change your name. And your name needs to be more American. And so I was like, well, what is, I am American. I was born here. I speak English, you know, go to school. Like, what does being more American mean? And so they changed my photo and I, I, I changed my name and I became uh, Trisha, Patricia McLean. And so my last name changed. And with that, I started learning that there's something wrong with being Latino. There was something that was going to harm me for being Latino, that I wasn't American enough. Um, And so I started at such an early age that I will do better, be better as as being more, you know, white passing. And so because I had done it for so long, I didn't even recognize. So for me, it was a process of self-reflection um, because I had done it for 20 years and really recognizing why I was doing this. Why didn't I embrace my culture? Why wasn't I probably talking about it? Why was I sharing it with my children? Um, and it's such, it becomes exhausting. It becomes physically exhausting. I straightened my hair um, for decades because I thought that was more professional looking than my curly hair. 
I sort of muted my voice. I was, I have a loud laugh. I'm, I'm, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm just kind of a louder person. Um, but I didn't want to be the loud Latina in the world, in the room. So I just changed all these parts of myself and, uh, which is very common for women of color. They change a lot of parts of themselves to fit in to the mainstream or whatever the dominant culture is. And, you know, when I'm in those spaces, particularly with women of color, they'll say to me, it's not until I get home that I can just like, ah, like mm-hmm. I can finally be myself. And so imagine spending all day, every day, like gearing up for the day and putting the, changing the hair and the clothes and your mannerisms and your language um, and not being able to bring your full ideas and innovation and creativity to the room because you're so bogged down by this other piece of, um, of you. It's a lot. Absolutely. And especially if there's any amount of shame attached to your identity, because it's, it's the energy that you're describing to have to adopt this totally different persona that you think is more aligned with the cultural mainstream. And then to worry, like, I hope I don't slip up, right. Or then people are going to find me out. And I think a lot about, you know, there's sort of the connection to imposter syndrome and this feeling of I'm not good enough. People are going to find out. And so, yeah, it's so, it, it makes so much sense that people who feel different from the dominant culture would be more likely to experience that because what you're describing is essentially, and I know that this is just, this is reality, right? Is that there is this mindset societally that there's a certain profile that we should all strive to fit. And that if you deviate from that in any way, it's not like, oh, you have this unique differentiated identity. It's like, no, I need to contort myself in some way to fit this very limited profile. And if I don't feel like I do, then I start to doubt myself. Then I start to have the parts of myself that would likely be an asset to other people if you could share them. Yes. I mean, I'm glad you said that. Yes. And I think that the parts that we're hiding from the workplace are assets. And that's really the message of my book at the end. It's like really coming to, you know, belong and belonging begins with self-acceptance. And once you believe that what you bring to the world is valuable and is an asset, that's when you free yourself um, and really bring and contribute um, into the workplace. And um, another example of how I sort of downplayed or hit parts of me was being a working mom. Um, when I had my first daughter, uh, I was in a uh, all male leadership team. Um, it was not an inclusive environment. And there were no, you know, this was 20 years ago, dating myself, uh, but there were no ERGs. There was no diversity, equity, inclusion programs. There were not even any external women organizations. So me showing up, you know, um, pregnant uh, in a really unsupportive space uh, was like, how do I do this? There was no playbook. How do I, uh, raising a family mattered to me. I wanted to do that. Uh, but I also really deeply cared about my career. And I was at, right at that stage that many women have, like right when you're about to get the next big job is kind of the time when you're starting a family. And how do you reconcile the two? So um, when I announced that I was pregnant, my boss, um, his reaction was, how could you do this to me? I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. <laughs> and I had the same reaction you had. But at the same time, I was the sole breadwinner. 
Um, and I wanted to prove that this movie would not end differently, that I would come back and I would prove that I deserve my position, that I deserve the next promotion, that I deserve all the things. Um, and so I came back really hiding um, this part of my identity as well. And so much so that, um, you know, my daughter, when I went back to work, my daughter wouldn't take the bottle. So I had to nurse her for about a month. And my husband would follow me, um, you know, every meeting I went to, you know, be in the garage. There were no nursing rooms. I would go to the parking garage and nurse my baby in the car and do all of these things because I didn't want to, um, I wanted to show up the way everybody else was showing up, which was one way. Um, mm -hmm. And that was not with a baby, nursing, you know, taking breaks, pumping, like all of that made me different. Um, and I had a lot of fear that I would be looked down upon um, for that reason. And so the the tragedy of that is that we have working moms in the workplace. We all contribute so much. Um, and, you know, by by them, by not creating an inclusive environment for me, I really got disconnected, frustrated, angry. Like it was a place where I eventually needed to leave. Um, but you know, it's so important that we have that perspective in the workplace so that we can can create better working environments for our working parents um, because, you know, we need to have those perspectives in the room. You're so right. And I'm just, oh gosh, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about the horror of having to go through that experience. And if you can't hide being pregnant, right? Like it's one thing you can... <laughs> Um, <laughs> I hid as long as I could. I think I told him when I was like six and a half months pregnant, I wore oh. big clothes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I just think about it too, of like, I mean, obviously this is not how um, people think, but I'm like, you're, you're braiding the next generation of the workplace. Oh like somebody has to give birth to these people. Right. Who's, who's going to do this? <laughs> yes, I know. Oh but you know, God. that experience and, you know, people offer like, I can't, you know, how horrible. And it was, it was probably one of the hardest times of my career. Um, but I, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, you know, I think going through that journey for me, um, as tough as it was 20 years later, whenever it was, 15 years later, when I was then a leader at Looker and part of the executive team, um, I remember walking into the office one day and seeing a woman pregnant. And she was one of the first women that was um, pregnant while working at Looker. And I thought, this has to be different for her. She cannot go through the same experience that I went through. And it was the reason that I came forward and said, look, we need to start a DEI program because we need to create spaces for working moms here in this organization. And um, so, you know, I think that we need to um, role model what it's, you know, what it's like um, to be, you know, uh, I think role modeling authenticity allows and gives permission to others uh, within the organization to show up as their authentic selves. And I think it's important that we support that. That's such a great point, because one of the things that we're talking about when we talk about the, the conformity tendency or drive is that we end up perpetuating a system that doesn't work for most of us. Yeah. And this individual experience that you're describing of just constant fear that you're going to do it wrong, that people are going to find you out. And so the 
you know, the, I think the, the ultimate hope is that as more women, as more people of color, as people who have different identities start to rise through the ranks, that they break that cycle of conformity so that they yeah. can create a new reality for the people yeah. who are coming up behind them. Right. And yeah. that's not an easy role to play. So how do you, how did you navigate? I mean, I guess I'm curious when you it sounds like you got a positive response to your, to, you know, the, the proposal that we need to have yeah. this initiative, but how did it feel to be a trailblazer in that way? Like, did it feel risky to you? Do you feel like it was um, something that was really uncomfortable? Yeah. So um, two things. So before that moment, I had already sort of started on my own uh, healing and my own transformation. So for a couple of years prior to that moment, I was working on myself, unpacking all the, you know, baggage and 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 harm and trauma that had happened over the couple of decades of my career. Um, so I had by that point um, really done a lot of that work of of healing and um, finding the tools and support that I need when I you know um, face it now. Uh, so I was in a better spot uh, to, you know, be able to sustain if the answer was no, or if there was pushback or challenges uh, than I was, I would say, you know, a couple of years prior. Uh, but even with that being said, we started the DEI program with, um, with and I, my impetus was, to, you know, to support working moms, uh, because that was, was a place that I couldn't really hide too much. Um, I, I had children at that point. They were teenagers and, you know, I was talking about them. So um, being a working mom and at that point being, you know, there was so much conversation about supporting our working moms. It felt less risky. Mm. But what happened was, you know, we created this DI program. And of course, a number of different ERGs emerged, one of them being um, the Latinx ERG. And we also created a storyteller program. And uh, if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't believe it, they asked me to come tell my story during National Hispanic Heritage Month. And I remember when they tapped me for this, I thought, never told my story in the workplace. It was that was risky for me because I had not done that. Um, and so I had a lot of trepidation going into that, a lot of fear, and it took me a lot of um, courage, uh, to go in because I, I didn't know what the reaction would be and all of my fears that I'd created over the years. And, um, and they were real. I mean, I had sat in rooms where people use all sorts of, you know, um, dog toy comments and whatnot. Uh, so I had real fears. Um, so, but I decided to do it. And so I went up and I told my story for the first time in front of my colleagues at Looker and, um, and, and globally. And what I didn't realize was the impact that that story would have on others. I was so concerned about like me getting over it and getting through it and building up the courage and having all my fears. But I didn't realize the value of the storytelling. And so when I finished the story, I had so many people come up to me just say, I didn't know, you know, I'm, I, I opened my eyes. I didn't know this about you. I didn't know that other people uh, are the struggle with this. I didn't, how beautiful your, you know, your culture is. Um, I'd like to learn more. And then the most rewarding was Latinas, young Latinas, especially say, I've never seen anyone that looks like me in leadership. 
the first time I've like literally seen it. Or my mother also is from El Salvador. I've never met anybody whose mother's from El Salvador. I feel like I can, you know, do it. I feel seen. Your story is my story. And that moment for me was all I needed to say, okay, this sharing this part of me is not about me. It's about everyone else. It it provides permission for others to show up. It, you know, one of the things I struggled with as a young Latina 25 years ago was I saw nobody that looked like me. So I couldn't, I couldn't imagine myself being in these positions. Um, they seemed so foreign to me. And by me not showing up as a, as a Latina and proud, what a disservice to this next generation, because they're so desperately looking for that. And Latinas, I mean, we're less than, you know, 2% in the C-suite, less than 1% in the boardroom. They really are very few of us. So, um, so I just, I feel like it almost was a responsibility to be seen. Oh, what a powerful story. I had goosebumps while you were saying that about the response. Yeah. Because you're right. And I think that it is so hard. I mean, it, it is really hard to share vulnerably and openly, especially a story you haven't told before. And yeah. able to, and I just think about this in terms of people listening who may be very guarded for, for very legitimate reasons, but to think about opportunities for vulnerability as not you know, obviously we're all going to have our own fears like you're talking about, but to think of them as an act of service, right? Because I think that Mm -hmm. so often we are willing to take that risk if we feel like we're doing it on a mission, if we're doing it benefit of others. And so everybody wins when you do that, because I'm sure there's a a certain amount of healing that came with that process for you too. And then to be able to provide that kind of support to others is so powerful. It ha- it's been the most rewarding part of writing the book and, and speaking to people. Uh, I, you know, I get emails and notes from, from folks just really grateful to be in conversation or even around this topic. If there is a lot of shame. If you've been hiding something about yourself, there's a lot of shame of revealing it. And so um, openly talking about that is, um, is really important. And so, yeah, I've definitely been rewarding. Do you have tips for, I mean, obviously it sounds like you had a very specific event that you were invited to in order to tell your story. Are there other ways in which you would recommend people think about sharing a little bit more of themselves in the workplace and, um, you know, maybe taking baby steps if it feels too daunting to to do something on a stage? Like, (laughs) well, yeah. And, uh, Kim, I think what what you said just now is the important part part is baby steps. And one of the messages I have in my book is 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 called small steps repeated often. And they are baby steps. They're small steps. Um, you're not going to just go on a platform and tell your whole story for the first time. And that um, that would be really hard, um, you know. And for me, I didn't start there. I started with baby steps. I started with sharing um, a little bit about myself to my friends that I really, my friend, my friends didn't know my background um, and talking about my, you know, family in Ecuador and how, you know, how many cousins I had and, how, you know, what the family trips were like there and what the country was like and just in a really safe environment with people that I trusted um, and then moved on from that to starting to slowly reveal myself um, on public spaces where I would maybe like on LinkedIn, I would 
Had thinks about my my heritage, um, being part of the Hispanic National Bar Association, adding Spanish as a language that I speak, and just sort of revealing more of who I am um, in a public space. Uh, and also even in like um, social media, just talk, you know, making some comments in Spanish um, or talking about my, you know, my relatives or things like that, just very subtly just start talking about, you know, the things that are important to you or that are part of you that you may not um, have otherwise talked about. Uh, so that's how I started it with little baby steps. And, you know, once you practice, it's like a muscle, once you practice doing some of that and you realize the world doesn't fall apart and, you know, you, you know, you do it again, it becomes a little bit easier each time. I think that's such a great way to think about it. I I often say that to you of like your your brain catches up once you do it and you, and the sky doesn't fall, right? It's like, oh, yeah. not as dangerous or scary as I thought it was. I can do it more easily the next time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I, that's great. And then in terms of and this one's probably a little bit trickier because there's so much that depends on the culture of the organization that you belong to, but as sort of the the next level of what we're talking about do you have thoughts on how to influence change, how to be a change maker from the inside? Um, you know, it's it's hard to, it's, it's got to be hard to propose something that doesn't exist today and worry what people are going to think. Like, how do, you, how do you apply a similar principle of baby steps, but to try to move the ball forward as it relates to what we're talking yeah. about? Yeah, you know, I think... Um... If you are uh, that person on that journey, I think just showing up as yourself as wholly and authentically as you are um, is change maker. You are a change maker, right? Because you are already influencing everyone around you. Um, and part of um, this conversation is really, you know, why I'm such a proponent of storytelling, of telling our stories to each other, is that we all of those fears or stories or unconscious biases that we've created, you know, start. Um, um, going by the wayside because you you just get to know each other. Uh, so I think just really showing up authentically is you know a really big part of this. Um, if you're a manager or leader, um, and if you do have a sense of belonging and you have influence, there are so many strategies that I've included in the book of how you can uh, create change within your organization. And so, like for example, if you um, if you are holding a meeting. And oftentimes, you know, as organizations, we always are striving to have more diversity, right? The stats look really good. You want them to look good. But then once somebody gets there, you don't do anything around creating um, a safe space for inclusion. And so you'll have a meeting and you'll say, I want diverse thought. But then you'll say, well, I don't know. Why are you always, you know, saying the opposite thing? Or why are you, you know, why why can't you just go along with what we're we're all agreeing on? Mm -hmm. um, so if you're holding a meeting, um, instead of requiring that one person to be always raising their hand with the maybe opposite opinion, you can challenge the group. If every if you see the conversation kind of landing with everyone, you know, coming around with one idea, challenge the group to say, hey, I want the group now to think opposite. What is the opposite of the situation here? What is something outside of the box? What is a different way to approach it? So now you're challenging the whole group to come up with a different idea rather than singling out one person 
may always have a, you know, a unique idea. Um, so that doesn't other them as much. So, you know, that's a simple technique that managers can do just to create more um, inclusion and more diversity of thought into decision making. I love that because I think that there are a lot of well-intentioned leaders who would love to create more inclusive spaces, but there's a gap between the vision and the action, right? And so it's like, what does that actually mean? Especially if not to excuse, you know, bad behavior, but I think there are a lot of people who are just running a hundred miles an hour trying to meet all of the deadlines and pressure points and they just don't give themselves space to even think differently about how they're behaving. So much of it is habitual and reflexive and they don't realize what they're doing or the impact it's having. So being able to not only like think about what would it look like, but to have very actionable steps they could take. Yes. Well, and it has, inclusion has to be intentional. As you mentioned, like we are all busy and we're all, there's going to be a million reasons why, um, you know, so hiring, well, you know, the pipeline, it's hard to find diverse candidates or that you don't have budget for this. I mean, there's a million reasons of why you might um, not want to uh, work on it. And it has to be intentional. It has to be intentional from the strategic level um, at the manager level. Um, people really have to make it something that they are working on. And the other piece of in, in inclusive leadership is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, These conversations are hard sometimes. And we all come to this conversation from a different lived experience. uh, And it might make us uncomfortable. We don't want to get it wrong. You know, a lot of times people say nothing or do nothing because they don't want to make a mistake. Um, And so, you know, I think, you know, all often, you know, the, um, the benefit of being able to be both white passing and a person of color is I'm in both spaces. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very, you know, when I'm in the space of women of color, I'll say, I'll hear uh, that we're very used to being uncomfortable. We have had to learn how to be uncomfortable to survive in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, so being uncomfortable is not a hard thing for us. But when we, you know, when I'm in spaces or when I challenge somebody who may not be used to being uncomfortable, that feeling of being uncomfortable really is hard. Um, and so you want to shut down. You don't want to talk about it. Let's make it easy. Let's make everything, you know, safe. And it's like, well, it, let's talk about it. Let's talk about why we're feeling uncomfortable. Why, you know, we're not going to make a change unless we get comfortable with that. I'm so glad you brought this up too, because I was thinking about the the responsibility of people let's face it, white men, white people, right, to to be part of this. It's not, we certainly shouldn't put the burden on people of color or, you know, anybody who sort of feels different from the dominant culture. But you're absolutely right that there's so many people, and I've heard this from very brave white men who have said to me before, like, I don't know what support looks like. I'm so afraid of getting it wrong. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. And so in particular, as we talk about creating space for people to be their authentic selves, to share their stories, to talk about their own, you know, sort of family origin, heritage, all of these aspects of ourselves. Are there ways in which you think uh, people could invite others to share more of that? Because you don't want to 
infringe on someone's privacy or make them feel different in some way. But but also sometimes if we don't create an opportunity for the conversation, nobody knows that it's okay to have it or nobody feels like it's safe to do. So how do we model a safe place for people to be themselves? I know that's a big question, but just any thoughts? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I really do believe in the power of vulnerability. So I think the leaders um, that are vulnerable about their lives creates a space, a safe, psychologically safe place for people to bring their whole life to work. So um, it doesn't have to be about race or gender. It could be, you know, I'm really struggling with anxiety I, or I'm having a hard time. I have a, you know, elderly um, family member that I'm, you know, caring for. Um, my child is going through these hard times. Like when people start sharing the hard things, uh, what they're struggling with, then it creates a space where, yeah, I'm also struggling with this, or this has been hard for me. Um, so I think vulnerability, I mean, I think we're not one dimensional people, we're multidimensional people. And the more connection you can make on the human side, um, with people around you that work with you, um, the more they're going to bring their whole self to work. So I think vulnerability um, is a place to start. That's a really good point too, because I think about, I've been thinking a lot lately about expanding the definition of diversity to, I think one of the unintended consequences of some of the DEI initiatives has been to create somewhat of an us versus them type of dynamic. And I think sometimes some people feel like they don't see themselves as diverse as as if there's like, you know one, one thing and then everybody else is diverse, right? No, it's all of us. Right. And so I think too, you know, one of the things that I will say is even if we don't know what it feels like to be part of an underrepresented group, we all know what it feels like to feel left out. We all know what it feels like to feel like an outsider in some way. Right. And so I actually, um, this really, I was doing a group, um, around like confidence building. And there was this very senior level white man who participated in the group. And he talked about the fact that he grew up in rural Idaho. It was the only one in his community to go to college. He moved to like the East Coast. And now he has this very difficult time relating back to his community. And I just thought it was a perfect example of how we can see ourselves in this conversation, no matter what our background yeah. is. And so I think getting people to really think about like you're talking about sharing the hard stuff we've all you know, yeah we we've all, all had of us. unique experiences but there's a lot of common themes <laughs> so yeah yeah uh yes and I try to emphasize that when I have this conversation I mean there's so many parts of ourselves um yeah economic you just mentioned economic uh you know background uh um you know, neurodiversity is another one. My, you know, my daughter has dyslexia. A lot of people like don't talk about their dyslexia. Um, we need to talk about it, right? There's different learning styles. How do we, how do we bring the best out of people unless we talk about, um, learning differences? Uh, there's, you know, there's so many different parts of being, you know, uh, being raised by a foster parent, um, being homeless for part of your life. Uh, you know, there's just getting a GED instead of a college degree. Uh, you know, there's just so many parts of ourselves that we say, oh, you know, it's not going to be good enough. 
So I'm going to not talk about it. Yeah. Uh, but those, we are all, you know, we all have things in our backgrounds that, um, that were maybe hard or challenging, but that is what society is. Um, and how do we create products and services that serve all communities unless we're talking about those things? Exactly. Exactly. And I, you know, so I think there's, there's so many different reasons for doing what we're talking about. Um, any surprises for you as you were writing the book? Anything that like you weren't expecting to hear or? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, the, the surprise for me was um, how much marketing, <laughs> how much visibility um, I needed to, you know, to, like when I am a lawyer. So the writing piece wasn't that hard in the sense of like, I am used to writing. I'm really used to editing. So the editing process often is hard for authors. Um, not hard for me. I, cause I redline everything all day long. So the, the writing, even though I definitely hit points that were challenging of, um, imposter syndrome, you know, thinking of myself as an author, uh, but the visibility piece was really hard. Uh, I, you know, really struggled with creating a platform, creating, um, visibility around me. It felt very, um, very selfish or very like, uh, you know, a lot of ego involved in it. And I didn't like that piece of it. So for example, when I was trying to come up with a cover design, the publisher recommended that I put a picture of myself on the book. Uh, and my first thought was the only, the first book that came to my mind was Michelle Obama's Becoming. And I was like, I am no Michelle Obama. Like why would I in the world would I put my picture on this book? Like how, like, you know, I just, I, I could not, I couldn't even think about it. I mean, it was an automatic no, there's no way, like just the vulnerability of putting my picture on thousands of books, just I could not get my head around it. Um, and as you know, I didn't do it, but you know, what they were trying to say to me was, look, your whole message and mission is to inspire others, is to be visible for, especially for Latinas. They have, they don't see themselves in leadership. So by putting your face out there, it's not about you. It's about them. It's about how do you inspire them? People have to have a face to be inspired by. Um, and so we compromise and I have a little tiny, little tiny picture right here. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I've become more comfortable with it. And I have made a website and, you know, doing more social. Um, and it matters, you know, it does matter. But that was a really hard I struggled with it. I kind of said no a million times and, and I'm getting around to it now. <laughs> well, I am so grateful to you for sharing your story here, for sharing your story in the book. Where can people find you if they want to learn more to get your book? Yeah. Well, I have a website. <laughs> <laughs> TrishaTim.com. So T-R-I-C-I-A-T-I-M-M.com. Uh, you can join my newsletter there uh, and you can find my book everywhere. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your indie bookstore. Uh, it's on audiobook, uh, Kindle, all the places you can find it. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Trisha. I am so grateful to you for this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having uh, conversations like this. They're so important. So thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Imposter Syndrome Files. If you would like to continue this conversation in a safe and trusted space, I would love for you to join my virtual discussion group every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern. 
For the past several years, the group has been limited to women, but it is now open, regardless of gender, to anyone who is interested in exploring and troubleshooting common workplace challenges, building better awareness of ourselves and others, and becoming more inclusive allies at work. Check out the show notes for more info on how to find us, and please join us next week for another episode of The Imposter Syndrome Files.